Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast, episode 72, the one about remote work policies, content mistakes, superpowers, and the Shawshank Redemption. Let's get on with the show. Hello, hello, and welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back for more news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. Joining me, a man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast, and the author of Catsmat and Marketing Plans, I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you so much. And of course, I am joined by a man who is also on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio podcast. Please welcome Monsieur Pascal Fintoni. Thank you very much. Now, Roger, I had a quick look at the show notes. I didn't want to spoil anything, but you are taking us back to the 90s for film marketing, aren't you? Yes, we are going to look at the film The Shawshank Redemption. Now, what a name that film has, The Shawshank Redemption. And we're going to find out when we talk about it that perhaps the name of the film was one of the reasons why it wasn't a box office success when it was launched. Of course, now it's probably one of the most popular movies of all time. But when it was launched, it, it was a bit of a bomb. And maybe the title of the movie was one of the reasons why. Wow. So we may have to do some kind of a film marketing clinic and you know, <laughs> go back in time, as we've done before, to say if only the new then what we know now the marketing campaign could have been very very different but before we do so we have lovely segments such as this week in history the content spotlights and so on but let's begin with in the news According to a nationwide study by The Guardian, 65% of podcast listeners pay attention to adverts more than adverts on TV at 39% and adverts on the radio at 38%. Okay, well, the EU is debating two new regulations, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act, to remove the dominance of Amazon, Apple, Google, Meta and Microsoft and to allow local rivals to compete and grow fairly. TikTok has partnered with Instacart to create shoppable recipes. This new integration will let people order ingredients when watching food creators with nearly 60 billion views of the hashtag FoodTikTok. This could be a huge success. Wow. Well, at this year's Digital Experience Summit in London, Boots CMO Pete Marquis stated that to make a repositioning a success, brands should also involve all the employees. It's about the whole company, not just marketing. YouTube revealed five new streaming features, Go Live Together, Live Rings, Cross-Channel Live Redirects, Full Screen Mode, and Live Q&A. Does that all sound familiar, Pascal? Because they're all inspired by Instagram, TikTok, and Twitch. Well, Google again is launching a product called Aloud, which will automatically dub videos into multiple languages rather than adding subtitles as seen on YouTube. You can register now for early access by searching Aloud Dubbing by Google. The Marmite's Flippin' Tasty Pancake Day social media ad was in the top 10% of all UK ads on its ability to make people stop and look. The six-second video featured a squirrel flipping a pancake <laughs> while standing on top of two jars of Marmite peanut butter. I want to say that again now. Sad news. Mark Commode and Simon Mayo announced that their film review radio show will come to an end on the 1st of April after 21 years on air. Although Commode recently tweeted a photo of Spinal Tap captioned, but like Tap, we'll be back. Stay tuned. Yeah, so maybe they've got something else up their sleeves. Indeed, yeah. I mean, 21 years. That's extraordinary, isn't it? 
I mean, yeah, I mean, we've been doing this podcast for coming up for two years, coming up for two years. So goodness gracious me, that means that we've got at least we've got another 18 years to go before we can match their record. You could imagine 21 years ago, how very different all your production would have been compared to what they can do now. I mean, interestingly, Mark Commode recently did a test on Twitter spaces. So actually, we did that before him and Simon Mayo. So, you know, we, we have one uh, upon them. But for me, Mark Commode and Simon Mayo, the film review show, I don't listen to it all the time. But it's one that I love to go back to because it's that art of the conversation and they don't agree all the time and they will tease each other and sometimes mock each other for having different lines and dislikes and and i think it's something i want to explore again as part of um, this episode but i want to ask you perhaps something that we know already where do you stand with the mimite and particularly peanut butter when i was reading that piece of news there pascal my brain was saying what there's marmite peanut butter <laughs> i mean honestly we know that marmite is well, I mean, it's it's entered the le lexicon of language, hasn't it? That Marmite is, is some people like it, some people hate it. And there's no real middle ground. You either love it or you hate it. I, I think it's it's just disgusting. I've never, <laughs> ever liked Marmite. Um, I think there's something similar down down in Australia, New Zealand called Vegemite, isn't that's there? That's right, and yes. That, that's a similar sort of thing. Uh, but the fact, the fact that you can get peanut butter-flavoured Marmite, or is it? marmite flavored peanut butter i don't know but uh, that just that just just makes me makes me cringe i mean peanut butter is super sort of sweet and tasty and it reminds you of um of uh, school days and it reminds you of um, desserts but putting marmite on it that's just like putting salt into coffee isn't it it's oh i just can't get my head around it uh, i mean for me the only way you should eat pancakes with nutella you know that that's the way to go or you know, I know that people like um, you know um, sugar with um, lemon juice and so on. But what I think about Marmite, which I think has been the lesson of all marketing lesson, which is the idea of you will not please everybody, and that's the way it should be. And actually, you should lean on that. You know, you should find your 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 fans. And I mean, some of the adverts remember on TV where families will be torn apart allegedly and it was kind of a comedy act between those who liked marmite and those who didn't around the kitchen table it was just absolutely divine talking of marketing lesson let's go to boots or the cmo <laughs> of boots speed market talking at this year's digital experience summit it's about the whole company not just marketing and my first reaction was no s sherlock you know what about you know <laughs> not spending your time stating the obvious but then 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 i retracted myself thinking no 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 it's correct one of the things that we have to do, all of us, is to repeat some of those kind of core tenets of marketing. And I think he's doing the right thing here, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've said on this show so many times that marketing is going through a bit of a crisis at the moment in terms of its image and in terms of its identity. And we know, and we've said on this show so many times, marketing is not just about communications. It's not just about adverts. It's not just about promotion. It's an entire discipline that in, involves customer research. It involves product development. It involves pricing and branding. And it also involves all those adverts and communications that we talk about. About. And when you understand that that's what marketing's all about, it is a company-wide process. Everybody is involved in it. 
you know, whether it's the brand, whether it's the product, whether it's the price, whether it's the advertising. So yes, it is the basic obvious fact of marketing that everybody should be involved in it. But I think that because marketing has effectively gone through this identity crisis where a lot of people just see it as advertising and therefore it's just the responsibility of one department, then I can understand why him saying what we think is the bleeding obvious might come as a bit of a surprise to other people. What I like about it is this idea of when you work in marketing, you should be so curious and inquisitive about every aspect of the business and a sure sign that it is the case. And the evidence would be that you take the trouble to visit all the different departments, even if you work remotely, you know, spend some time on video calls with everybody working in the business. Because mm. for me, my position now would be that, you know, the, this whole adage of, you know, the customer comes first. And I would say the customers and the employees come first. There's a parity here that I think is what uh, Pete Markey is talking about. Absolutely right. I wanted to ask you very quickly about this business of the EU and by extension the UK, as we know, is looking into the online safety bill as well. But this idea of removing the dominance of Amazon, so putting boundaries in their activities to allow local rivals to compete and grow fairly. I've been thinking about it, say, would I be uh, minded to use an unknown search engine you know, developed by maybe a company in Durham or one in Edinburgh or Glasgow, or is it that it's too late, Pandora's box has been open? It's a difficult one, this, isn't it? I mean, I, I've tried very hard to, and I think we've had this conversation before, Pascal, I've tried very hard over the last year or so to try and wean myself off immediately going to Amazon, immediately going to Google. But you know, even just yesterday, uh, there was a there was a re um, an ingredient that I need for a curry. But can you believe this? There's an ingredient that I need for a curry, and they don't stock it in Tesco. And it, it it's 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 coconut powder. It's coconut powder, and the only place I could find it was on Amazon. So I'm having a box which is probably about this big and this this wide and that long being delivered from Amazon and it'll probably come in a box big enough to hold a you know a car um but it, it is hard to wean yourself off these big massive conglomerates <clears throat> but you know you then hear the stories about them setting up all these different corporate structures so that they can avoid paying tax I'm not saying that you know that it's 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 not illegal to avoid tax as long as you stay within the law, but there's just always feels something wrong about it. And these companies are constantly getting tripped up by doing sort of slightly dodgy things. So I do feel that we should be supporting the local rivals to try and, uh, and you know al allow them to prosper. But it's a hard one to get people to change especially when they've become so dominant and such an integral part of our lives i wonder if uh, and you know we'll do the research for everyone listening and watching and we'll report back on the evolution of those regulations i wonder if it's a bit like what we have in the uk roger with um bt so bt have installed obviously the the broadband connection super fast as well as ultra fast but in doing so, they have to allow competitors to literally use their, their cabling to offer the services sometime at a more competitive rate, which at first BT was fiercely against.
governance, and you can really understand that. Hang on a minute, we've made the um, the investment, and the governance said, "Well, yeah, with our money and with our kind of um, support and, and wishes." I wonder if it's to do with more the you know the inner workings of Amazon, for example, the marketplace, or the inner workings of Google, where they have to literally allow somebody else to use that engine to compete against them. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a very interesting to keep track of that. Yeah, absolutely right. But in, in principle, I'm absolutely all for this. You mentioned food, interestingly. So very quickly, <laughs> TikTok and the Instacart, the shoppable recipes. So I'm in two minds about this. I'm thinking, can we not have something on the internet without always something to do like buy and like, comment and share? You and I were laughing in the green room about my Google Assistant on the phone always switching itself on all of the time when I'm talking to somebody. Uh, but then again, this is kind of great for small businesses, right? Yeah. Again, I mean, I can I can draw an analogy with this with the uh, item we've just been talking. You've got somebody watching a TikTok video, watching somebody cook a recipe, and that's absolutely fine. Uh, but if what you then do is go onto your um, PC and order it to be delivered from Amazon, then Again, is that really what we want to do? By all means, write down the ingredients that people are using on that uh, TikTok video, but then put your coat on, put your shoes on, get outside, walk down to the shops and buy them yourselves in person and help those local businesses. So, yeah, I, I, again, it, that's why it's going to be so difficult to, to change the way people are because of this whole online infrastructure focusing us and forcing us down digital channels all the time and very very quickly i know that typically in the news we don't we don't cover all of them but this week they are so good i want to know whether you would consider having your video the rog vlog videos how many have you done so far roger Oh, I'm about 105 now. Oh, wow. 105 watch vlogs. Yeah, this this is amazing. We we watch them on the on the big telly. Uh, it's just a pleasure because you use you know, such a good camera now. Uh, I mean, you always have done, but on the big screen, it just looks stunning, and the sound is amazing. But I'm thinking about dubbing. So, would you consider yourself to be dubbed in French or in German or in Japanese? And I, I think it would look very funny. <laughs> You know, and if you could choose maybe a, a famous um, French actor or maybe a famous American actor to dub you, who would it be? Oh, I, uh, my the the first name that came to mind was Antoine de Cones. Oh, is that yes. the right name? It is, they yes. used to do ra 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 Rapido or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah, you say hello, my English chums. Welcome to Rosvlog. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll do the actually. No, I'll do the dubbing for you. Uh, I'll try. I'll try to remember what it's like to have a very a thick French accent. Super. Fantastic. Well, listen. Thanks again for you know your reaction and your comments on this week in the news. But we're going to move on now and slow things down with the content spotlights. Now, in this segment of the show, Roger and I surprise each other with a discovery from the interweb, an article, a podcast, a video, something that helps us reflect what it means to be a content marketer and small business owner in today's economy. So, Roger, what have you got for us today? Well, I've got an article for you, Pascal. It's from Inc., the website Inc., which is possibly one of the most popular uh, sources of content for this part of the show. And this article has the intriguing title, This CEO's Remote Work Policy is Only 10 Words, and It May Be the Best I've Ever Heard. This article is by Justin Barisso. Now, a little bit of background to this article, because I've been hearing a lot of talk from 
friends of mine who work in big corporates and are probably coming to an end coming to an end to the working from home um, that we've had for the last two years because of the pandemic and I've been very interested in how some of those companies have handled the transition back to office working I've heard stories of people saying okay you've got a week and then it's back to normal come into the office you know uh, back to commuting back to childcare whatever it might be end of story no arguments then you've got the uh, what I would consider to be more enlightened employers who are actually saying, Do you know what, we'll carry on. Maybe you only need to come into the office one day a week, one day a month, whatever it might be. And you also hear some real horror stories as well of, of, of companies that are just really being downright nasty to their employees um, around these things. And that's really what drew my attention to Dan's article because he's talking about sorry, Justin's article, Justin is talking about a CEO called Dan Price, who um, is running a company called Gravity. And his way of thinking about this whole working environment thing now is to say, if you get your work done, that's all that matters. I don't care whether you're in the office, you're at home, or they sat on a beach, or whether you're sat on the, on the top of a flagpole. I don't care where you are as long as you get the work done. And I actually thought that was quite enlightened and quite interesting. And Justin then goes into his article to sort of look at the reasons why companies might not have that enlightened attitude. And he starts talking about companies that install all the software to check what you're doing and to take photographs of you every 30 seconds or whatever it is to make sure that you're sat at your desk and you're doing work. And Justin really comes to the conclusion that companies that have to employ that sort of surveillance style technology are actually not very nice companies to work for. And indeed, you'll probably find quite a lot of their employees are unhappy and are probably looking to leave. But it actually shows that they haven't understood how to motivate staff to actually do work. You know, even as far as actually telling them what the work is that they need to get done and by when. The very fact that you can put goals in front of people and tell them what you want them to achieve can be enough that they will then go away and do it, whether it takes them a week or whether it takes them a day. And under Dan Price's uh, logic, you'd say, well, if your goal is to get this particular piece of work done and you've got five days to do it, then his argument would be, well, as long as you get your work done, I don't care. I.e., if you get the work done in a day and it's high quality and it meets standards, then Basically, you can have the other four days off. Uh, whether that would work in practice, I don't know, but that's the implication. But then he compares that to these companies that feel the need to over-surveil and over-survey their, their uh, workers, and that is not the right way to do it. And, and he also goes into some really interesting things about emotional intelligence, which I'm not going to go into today, but some of the things that CEOs want to think about, like showing a personal interest in their people, com clearly communicating the scope of their work and their expectations, the goals that I've just imagined there. And believe it or not, given what we've just talked about in the news, also keeping them up to date on things like branding and marketing, just so that they are involved and they are part of the overall team and the overall experience. So it's a really short article and I just thought it was quite an enlightened position. But then, Pascal, I then sat down and thought, do you know, again, are we actually 
falling into the trap of thinking too digitally again. Because it's all very well saying, as long as you do your work, I don't really care where you are. But that really only applies to people in sort of office-type jobs, doesn't it? You can't sort of say to an NHS worker, as long as you do your job, I don't care where you are, because they've got to be in the, in the hospital or the surgery or wherever it is. You can't really say to somebody working on the till in Asda or Tesco, I don't care where you work, as long as you get your work done. They all have to work seven hours sat at the till or whatever it might be. Similarly, with, with, quite, with, with people who drive trucks, whatever it is. So it's all very well people saying these sort of things, but I do wonder whether we are creating a sort of two-tier society where the people who are, have got the ability to work remotely via Zoom, via Teams, whatever it might be, almost become a different class, maybe class is the wrong, the wrong word, but a different type of worker to the ones who just have absolutely no choice whatsoever and have to go to the coalface and do their work there. And I don't know the answer to this. I, I sort of hoped that the pandemic might have usher in a real rethink as to how the whole work-life balance thing works. But I do wonder whether these enlightened uh, philosophies like Dan Price's really only apply to people like you and I, I guess, who are lucky enough to be able to work behind a computer if we want to. There's two things that uh, this article is doing, and, and your own reflection and, and, and views on that is, is capturing the mood of, of the time. And I've had many conversations with organisations where they want to avoid them and us, because even if you are office-based, where essentially your companion is a laptop, and you're working away all, all day, depending on your different function. There will be some people where remote working is not possible. The home environment is not suitable. They have uh, other ways in which they have to do things. So they're going to come in the office very often, if not five days a week. And you've got those who can work remotely. They have more freedom. And this tension about creating the, the accidentally, them and us, about those who are on-site and those who are off-site is something that many HR professionals and leaders are looking into. And then you move on to the society level, which is, yeah. So suddenly we're going to have a situation where, we, which we had, if you remember, when the pandemic started at the time of recording the, this podcast, Roger, we are two years to the day um, when our Prime Minister announced the national lockdown. And you had entire microeconomics in big cities when people didn't go to the office anymore. So the, so the small sandwich bar was out of work mm -hmm. and the... The dry cleaners and you know the newspaper agents and so on, and so the whole thing needs to be kind of thought at that level as well, because we need to make sure that, for example, the the burger bar can also accommodate the remote working as a, as a new way of um, of progressing. Now onto the the issue of trust. I think this is about trust, and mm. there's been always for me this anomaly where I would work with clients. So I was an employ employee myself many decades ago where pretty much what we are saying or what we are hearing from our leaders, we don't trust you. Mm. So you, know, you went through the job interview sometime, particularly when it was a senior role, uh, it was a three-stage you know, interview. We went through all of that. You went through the induction. You proved yourself. You succeeded in doing your probation period. You've done all of that, but we still don't trust you to do your work. That's the message that some organizations are putting out there. Now, don't get me wrong. The bigger the organization the more likely the 0.1% of cheaters and liars and so on would be, would be present. But then you, you have processes for that. They, they would get found out because of poor performance or, or whatever. 
and you can do that. But what you don't do, for example, and a friend of mine went through that. She was working from home. It was 2020, 2021. And she got an email from HR saying, we have noticed that you are not at your computers between the hours of nine to five. So reaction is, well, how do you know? And how do you know? How do you know? <laughs> and they confessed that they had a software tracking the use of the keyboard on the company laptop. The hours mm. in which, you know, they, they didn't go as fast as whether or not they could track where you were typing. They said, but if your software is working properly, you'll find that I'm working from six till 10. And I have a long break because I've got, I've got a young boy. My husband then comes back from work and I work then from five till 10. I'm talking about 10 p.m. And th this, this idea that, A, you feel the need to track people so you don't trust them. And then when you have some, and certainly some information, you go for the accusation as opposed to, well, actually, what can we do to help or is, is anything that matter? You're not going for that kind of emotional intelligence of, well, if somebody, for example, is not performing, the default position is not to punish them or to try and find how they are cheating. It's more thinking, well, there has to be maybe a, a problem. You know, I mean, let's investigate that. Let's start by being kind and caring first before we start to kind of uh, use, you know, accusation, that kind of thing. So this issue of trust has been something that I've been wrestling with ever since I, I was a young marketing assistant you know, in, in my late, mid-20s, and it's been present ever since. And I'd like to think, but I think you and I know that that's not always the case, that the pandemic has shaken, you know, businesses enough for the last, vast majority to kind of go on trust first, as opposed to doubt and, and you know, like you were saying, spying on people and tracking what they were doing. Yeah, and, and I think the majority will will go the right way but there still are those old-fashioned people mm. you know i can remember one of my original bosses was one of these guys who you know he was frowned upon if you left the office before him you know and he was he was sitting there till half seven at night and he created such a culture that people were scared to leave and therefore, people were working until half past seven at night, purely because he was sat there. And sometimes I thought he was just sitting there just to spite everybody. Um, you know, when I became um, the managing director of one of the big corporates for a very limited period, I hasten to add, but I was the, the MD, I, I said to people, I will be out of the door at five past five. You know, I'm not one of these people who um, has got this sort of thing that MDs have to sit around until nine at night, and you have to stay here as well. I've got a work, I've got a work-life balance. I've got a body combat class that I want to teach. So I was out the office at five past five, and and people could leave at four if they wanted to. But there are still some people. No, 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 no. I don't trust you. I've got to sit here and make sure you work till half past seven. Hopefully, that breed of CEO and MD is is running out. Yeah, yeah. Or just naturally, they're going to disappear. Yes, <laughs> well, that time, yes. The time is up, but that's all that they are being replaced by people who are a lot more enlightened. So today, for my selection, it's a podcast plus. What I mean by that is there's also a lesson in the way in which you know, I want to explain what I do. So the title of this podcast episode is as follows, Five Mistakes Businesses Make with Content by Joe Pilizzi. So let me begin with Joe. Second, I think, introduction, um, in, in, in um, inclusion into Content Spotlight. No surprise there. Joe Pilizzi, if you don't know him, you're in for a treat. One of the many champions of content marketing, Don Ryan, the driving force behind the Content Marketing Institute, book author, consultant and speaker, and podcast host as well. Now, 
The reason why I chose this one, because I wanted to also start with a learning element. If you look at the hyperlink shared in the show notes, you'll see that this will take you to a website called contentinc.io. Now, Content Inc. is, I believe, the second book written by Joe Polizzi. And what I like about it is that you've got the book, uh, Roger, if you think of it as a hub. So the, the book is is the hub. And then what Joe's done over the last few years is recording five to seven minute uh, episodes that supplement the learning from the book, supplements the content from the book. And it's all done onto, onto this one website. So I was thinking for our viewers and listeners, you know, you will have an ebook, you will have maybe a training course, you'll have potentially something that could be the star content and creating the hub where you drive traffic back to that hub by using short form podcast content is just great. And uh, I will say to Joe as well, big thank you because for me as a trainer and as a consultant, over the years you made my life so much easier because I can quote you and mention your examples for my more reluctant trainees. I said, well, you sure, Pascal? See, I'm sure I don't just take my words. There's another guy with an Italian surname, Joe Polizzi, that you should listen to as well. <laughs> so now onto the five mistakes businesses make with content. So it's it's lovely the way Joe does it because he, like you, reflects and reminisces on his role as a con- content consultant and talks about doing a content audit or content review if, if you will. And in general, he finds that these are the five mistakes people have made and he can then work with them to correct them. So mistake number one, that the business that he's helping is publishing content on far too many places. He quotes actually on the podcast that when he was doing the research as part of his work with the Content Marketing Institute, on average, business is publishing to more than 10 destinations. That's just too much. You become a jack of all trades and master of none, if that. So his recommendation is, let's be amazing at a few things, places and content, not just okay at many things. Makes sense, but you know, I have some sympathy, this this desire to be visible by going to lots of different places. Uh, it doesn't work like that. Um, well, content frequency is a number two mistake. It's just not consistent enough. You've chosen the wrong frequency for you. And my position, as you know, and yours as well, just be kind. Find the one that works for you. Don't listen to the others. They may have better resources. They may be lying, in fact. Uh, if it's once a fortnight, once a week, then it's once a fortnight for you. If it's monthly, it's monthly. But stick at it and think of it as programming a radio show, a TV show, or a magazine. Get people to look forward to it because of the frequency. Number two, the content that you think is original, it's not, or certainly is not truly differentiated. So my biggest gripe about the internet is that it's monotone. You know, people say the same thing, or they talk about the same thing the same way all the time. And sometimes, frankly, Roger, I think it's because of peer pressure, but also this um, strange feeling that I need to get the competition to agree with me. And in the process, the customer is completely forgotten. So my position, but also Joe's, would be, what is your unique perspective? What is your unique experience? What is the hook that allows you to tell the story in a very, very different way? Or is it that, frankly, that subject matter has been covered more than enough by the competition and you've got to go elsewhere? Well, he will say, I will agree, that takes time to discover your original voice or makes you different. Number four, and I feel that one because I would agree, we don't spend enough time focusing on email content and list building. So when it's all said and done, I know social media is still having the spotlights. Um, SEO is still the one that people ask me about, but email marketing, it's an oldie, but it's a goodie. 
And if you go back to number three, if you're going to do my marketing, do it in a way that is remarkable. Don't just give people the average experience. That is to say, frankly, what I get in my inbox is the same as everybody else. And number five, which I think relates to number one, Roger, the audience focus is too broad or there's no focus at all. So better to go narrow, which I know is very unnerving for my customers when I say to them, you've got too many customer groups, let's focus on one as a campaign. Be specific about the audience and be specific about their pain point, and that would become the source of the inspiration for your content. So what, number one, I wanted to share the way in which uh, Joe had built the hub around the book and the podcast. But number two was five lessons, very much like we mentioned earlier with um, Pete Markey from Boots, sometime you've got to hear it again and again and again. Yeah, absolutely. There's some really good stuff in here and, and, and almost a little bit of a parallel to the article I was talking about, uh, you know, and my story about the boss who would stay until 7.30 at night and, and everybody was too scared not to. It's a bit like that with content, isn't it? You've got the likes of Gary Vaynerchuk throwing out hundreds of pieces of content a day and a lot of people are almost scared not to be like mm. that you know i've got to do a daily podcast like john lee dumas i've got to do content like gary vaynerchuk well, well no you don't but they've they're almost the equivalent of the guy staying until 7 30 people st- sort of think that that's what they've got to be like and, and they don't what you really do need to do as you've said is stand out in a good way engage with the customer and maybe i would probably add add maybe a sixth mistake stake there that a lot of people especially people working in the same sort of environment as you and i is that we probably sometimes create content not for our customers but for our peers Mm. we actually create articles podcasts whatever it might be so that other marketing people say, oh, look, Roger and, Pot- and Pascal are doing some really good stuff here. And that's fine. But ultimately, we should be doing the content for the people that we want to become our customers. And I think we've all been guilty of doing content for our peers from time to time. I've done that as a very young marketing officer. Actually, my boss you know, really taught me a lesson. So I walked into the office saying, look at this, brandishing a marketing magazine because my marketing article had been published for marketing people. And he was so unimpressed. <laughs> and <he kind> of <laughs> said, you know, how is that going to help us sell more what we're trying to sell? And I was a bit hurt, I, w- I will confess. But then I thought, yeah, he's right. I should have just, you know, have my own little victory dance in the office just for myself, but not, you know, essentially <laughs> trying to claim that it was helping the business. Very, very quickly, once again, I mentioned earlier, you know, that I wanted to thank Joe for all his incredible work over the years with regard to content and the, and the message. But I am very, very jealous that Joe Polizzi spent some time with Mark Hamill at one of the uh, CMI uh, conferences. So just let you know, yeah, there's both um, kind of thanks, but also a bit of uh, jealousy on my part today. But it's all, it's all good, I promise you. Thanks again, <laughs> Joe. All right, but listen, um, we're talking about content a lot today. We're talking about trust and uh, employee engagement. Sometime the tech can make that a little easier. So let's move on to marketing tech and apps. All right, Roger. So what have you found to make life easier for all of us content creators? Well, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with somebody this week who is actually studying for an exam. My goodness, can you remember exams? I haven't had to, uh, had to take an exam for so long, but it reminded me that there are people who are doing professional qualifications. You know, they may have used the pandemic as an opportunity to go back and 
learn a new skill, do a degree, whatever it might be. And it just got me thinking about what apps and tech are there out there to help people study. Um, and as you would expect, and I, I don't know why I was surprised, but there is an absolute shed load of stuff out there to help people study. And the two that really caught my attention uh, were one called Quizlet, which their their strapline is learn with flashcards. And, and effectively, whatever the subject is that you're learning, whether it's a degree, whether it's a, um, a fitness course, whatever it might be, Quizlet has got some learning aids that will help you to prepare for your examinations. And it could just be, as the name would suggest, a load of questions to fire up to get you thinking about the answers that you might have to give. And, and it, in, obviously, if you're sitting an exam, you're going to be given specimen questions. But what's quite interesting about this is it, it might not give you the obvious ones. It might just make you think a little bit differently. So I thought that was a really fascinating, fascinating thing. And then the second one out of the very many that I looked at was called My Mind. And this caught my attention straight away because it's all about mind mapping. And it's how can people learn and, and plan by using a mind map? And the mind map is a remarkable way of being creative, of putting a plan together, and also arranging the material that you might need to study for an examination. And my mind is one of the best graphically uh, um, appealing mind mapping apps I've seen for a while. So if you are doing some studying, check out Quizlet and my mind. You might find that they'll help you out. Thank you very much. Do you know, I might even look into them just for uh, training sessions just to mm -hmm. for icebreakers mm -hmm. or group exercise and both of them the the mind mapping i know that some of our viewers and listeners may be rolling, rolling their eyes thinking oh we go again mind maps because they went you know one way and then hopefully things have settled what i will say is it's going to be far far better to begin with a mind map than going into excel and i give you why because recently i was helping a customer plan their social media so i gave them the advice and we, we did a kind of couple of zoom coaching sessions then they went to where did the prep when I came back, they presented to me this very, very busy Excel document. I could barely understand what on earth was in document. I was thinking, <laughs> ah, be careful because that a um, social media calendar is meant to be a source of inspiration, not a source of distress because right now I have no idea how you're going to be able to just feel good about social media. So the step just before, which would have been for you and I in our younger days, whiteboard and post-its and, and whatever, it still needs to be executed whilst using digital means. Excellent. Yeah. Now, for me, it's all about podcasting. Now, here's the thing, Roger. You know that I am a video-first kind of guy, but thanks to you, or because of you, I'm going to launch a podcast, an audio-only series very, very soon. So you have converted me to the course. <laughs> and I went down this incredible kind of rabbit hole of apps and solutions just to see what can I do that would be a bit different, almost going back to the um, Drupalitzi advice. And I came across some newer apps. They are in beta version, so they're still looking for testers and, and investors that is meant to enhance someone's podcast experience. So the first one is called Vizi dot fm v-i-double-z-y beta launch and what they're saying is not only can you upload obviously the audio content but you can also affix some 
images, some text, some additional kind of content that can make the listening a bit more interesting. So if it's a lesson, for example, from a, from a teacher, use that example, using your apps as a source of inspiration, you could then put some images, you can put some additional media content. So essentially creating almost like a video without having the imposition of having everything always on screen. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. And they have a bit of a strap line. Don't just listen, see. You can also buy by adding shopping carts moment, or a bit like the, the, the shop, shoppable recipes. And of course, you can share moments from that podcast. The next one that is meant to, again, enhance one's listening experience is a new one called Momento. Not to be confused with the film, I reckon. And this one is where you can listen to a podcast and almost put a, a stamp on a particular element of the podcast you find interesting. It could be 30 seconds, it could be a minute, and then you can share that with others. But also has instant transcriptions in different languages. So you could also capture it and then send someone the text. So if we had, for example, a 60-second statement from you, Marcel, Dripolitz, and all the others, that can be shared, that can be stamped almost like um, earmarked for a future listening. So Vizzy, Momento, and I think many others are going to start to make listening to a podcast even more interesting. Sounds really interesting, Pascal. And I can't wait to find out more about your audio podcast. And I'm so glad that I've managed to uh, persuade you that audio isn't all bad. No, not at all. I think it was just the audio only. It was just a little hard for me to uh, to kind of accept. But hey, listen, after 72 episodes, if I'm not converted by now, you know, there'll be no hope. <laughs> so once again, some great tech selections here. But none of this would be possible without the vision and the termination of pioneers and inventors of the recent and distant past. Let's move on to This Week in History. In 1889, the 984-foot, that's 300-metre, Eiffel Tower, a wrought iron technological masterpiece created by Gustav Eiffel to commemorate the centenary of the French Revolution, was officially inaugurated in Paris. Indeed, and in 1923, the Cunard liner Laconia docked in New York City, becoming the first passenger ship to circumnavigate the world. The 130-day tour was a charter by the American Express Company. The New York Times at the time reported that passengers collectively paid more than $1 million in fares. In 1949, Fred Hoyle unintentionally coined the term Big Bang in a scripted radio broadcast for the BBC Third programme. His critics found the Big Bang term pejorative, yet Hoyle explained that his intention was to make a visit vivid description for the radio audience. In 1972, The Godfather, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, is released. The film was nominated for seven awards at the 30th Golden Globe event and won the categories for Best Screenplay, Best Director, Best Actor for Ron Brando, Best Original Score and Best Picture. Horses, that's, heads in beds. <laughs> that's 50 years ago, yeah? I know, I know. 1972. So, so this year is the 50th anniversary. We, we, we've got to do something about it. I'd say we, the world, and and Francis, who's still alive, thank, you know, which is a good thing for us. That's just remarkable. And, I mean, I can hear the music in my head as I'm talking to you. I will say I've not sit, watched it for a while, and I'd love to because I am obviously a different person. I'm, 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 I'm older now. And I might understand or, or feel through the movie that there are different emotions. What about you? 
Yeah, I I think it's probably about 10 years since I watched it last. I think um, I got the DVD collection of all three movies as, as, a, as a Christmas or birthday present. But again, I can't, I can't believe it's 50 years old. Again, it's one of those iconic mo- movies, isn't it? There's always those scenes that stay in your head. The horse's head in the bed, obviously, is probably one that a lot of people remember. But I also remember the scene where... Um, uh, Al Pacino goes into the cafe, oh. uh, into the restaurant, and then he goes into the into the restroom at the back to collect the gun that somebody's taped to the back of the cistern. And then he goes back into the restaurant and shoots the policeman and the other mafia boss. And that's another iconic scene, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's it's a masterpiece, a masterpiece. Now, thank you very much for choosing the um, Eiffel Tower uh, as your first historical item. It was both for the um, commemoration of the French Revolution, but of course it was also the massive scientific um, kind of show taking place um, there. We call it the Tour Eiffel in, in, in France, the French version. And as a young boy, I remember actually climbing to the right, well, the, the as far as you can go to the public area, as a bit of a dare. And we had to stop a lot because it's uh, <laughs> it's a very, very high, and there are many, many steps to um, to go through. I don't think I would do it now. I think I would wait in long queue to get on the lift if I had to uh, revisit you know, the uh, the Eiffel Tower. But I wanted, I wanted to bring to you, it's almost like the theme of today, which is think about the customer. So Fred Hoyle about the Big Bang, which is really two terms that are now part of our language now, even a, a, a remarkable TV series, a Big Bang Theory. And, you know, what, what is interesting is you got 1949, that was obviously the radio show. And then literally, you know, 60, 70 years later, you've got the um, Hydron Collider recreating what is deemed to be a version of, of the Big Bang. And yes, critics and the experts and Fred Hoyle's peers were unhappy and he could have given in to the peer pressure, but he did not because he knew this was right for the audience who are not from the scientific background. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, it's interesting how words find their way into dictionaries and phrases become just accepted terminology. And, and it's sometimes really interesting to go back, isn't it, and find the origin of these words. Uh, we were watching a film um, last weekend, which is called um, Deep Water. Um, oh. And I can't remember the name of the director now, but it's the same director who originally directed um, Fatal Attraction back in the 1980s. And of course, Fatal Attraction um, had that scene where the, the evil woman in Fatal Attraction put the child's rabbit into a a, a, a pan on the stove. Yeah, Glenn Close, it. yeah. yeah. Uh, Glenn Close. And of course, now the term bunny boiler is uh, <laughs> is used as a, as a, as a term to, to represent uh, mad women in, 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 in scary films. Uh, and, and in the same way as bunny boiler has become an accepted phrase, Big Bang is an accepted phrase, but it, it's so interesting to go back and find out where these terms came from. Indeed, and I've just realised, listening to you, it's both, with that to be, double B, Big Bang, Benny Boiler. Maybe there's something in there. Well, hey, We've discovered something, good. Roger. Yeah, yeah, Hence it. why it's important <laughs> to do podcasts with your friends. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, let's get back to the present, if you don't mind, everyone, with our creator shout-outs. All right, Roger, so who is under the spotlight for you this week? 
Okay, this week I'm shouting out a gentleman called Ryan Hanley. Now, this is really interesting. Ryan Hanley was one of the first content creators that I became aware of when I started getting into digital marketing and content marketing back in the sort of 2010, 2011 era. And he wrote a book called Content Warfare. And I'd, I'd have to check, but I, I'm pretty sure I helped crowdfund that book because I was a big fan of his podcast at the time. So my name actually appears in the list of acknowledgements in that book called Content Warfare. And then Ryan sort of disappeared for a while because he was he was fronting the the, uh, the Ryan Hanley Content Warfare podcast. Uh, but at the same time, he was um, working... I think it was a family financial services business in America. And he was offered a job to go and become the head marketing uh, guy in a bigger financial services firm. And he sort of went off the radar for a little while. Ironically, I, I, I see it's like the opposite of what happened to me. When I started listening to Ryan Hanley originally, I was working in a financial, financial services big corporate, and I ended up leaving that big corporate to become a content marketing and, and, and marketing consultant. So I went the opposite way. Uh, but I've recently noticed that Ryan's been doing a lot more uh, podcasting outside of the uh, financial services confines that he put himself in for for a little while and i just came across this really really good episode i think it's just this week's episode uh, as we speak it's called the only superpower you need now it's not a long episode it's it's probably less than 15 minutes and ironically given what we've been talking about already today the theme is consistency and that's his that's his argument that the super the only superpower you need is consistency. And we've already said that today in the podcast, haven't we? On numerous occasions, going back to the news items, that consistency is so important. So there's a massive back catalogue of great stuff from Ryan Hanley, including that book, Content Warfare, which whilst it's probably coming up to being 10 years old now, is still a great book to read. So well done, Ryan. Good to rediscover you and uh, keep, keep being a content creator. Super. And you're right. Maybe it's all about hearing the same message from different sources and in different formats and manners, you know, for all of us. Now, my selection today, I think I should start with an apology because I'm breaking the rules. I'm not meeting the brief. And some of you can see Roger smiling, thinking, hang on a minute, where are we going with this? But let, let me explain, everybody. So last week, we in film marketing, we included Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, the Amazon TV series. We are also, of course, the celebrating uh, you know, the release of the Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson. You know, there's all that going on. I'm also, of course, seeing lots online. I've finished watching Return of the King at the weekend, and I discovered, to my delight, that Billy Boyd and Dominic Monaghan have a podcast. Now, if some of you are thinking, I know those names from somewhere, yes, Mary and Pippin have a podcast called The Friendship Onion Podcast Show, produced by Cast Media. And the reason why I chose it is because this is now my go-to podcast, if I need cheering up, but also back to, to lessons today, Roger. If you're thinking of content creation, if you think of podcast or video podcast, 
The best way to do it, I begin, I believe now, Roger, is leave work to one side to start something with one of your best pals. You will learn everything you need to learn about production, about promotions, product, and, and so on and so forth. But this is essentially their kind of weekly podcast about their lives and friendships on screen and off. And what I love about it is the interaction with the fans. So very, very quickly, if you're a fan of, obviously, the show, but Billy Boyd and Dominic Monaghan, you can leave a voicemail message and they will play it during the show and respond to you. You can suggest things that they should try to drink or eat in that Bill and Dom Eat the World segment. You can also suggest your favorite music in Funky For You segment, and you can also take part in the Lord of the Rings quiz and win some prizes. It's just joyous, really, and I know that it's not exactly the kind of um, selection we should have on this show, but for me, it's more this idea of why don't you all begin with non-work kind of related content, and then you'll have the confidence to move on to your specialist areas. So, Billy Boyd and Dominique Monaghan, thank you, by the way, for the last 20 years. of I've been watching those films like Roger almost yearly since they're released on the big screen. And good luck with the show. Fantastic. Although I don't know why they didn't call it the Merry and Pippin show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps they should have had a marketing advice. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, listen, thank you very much for your selection again, Roger. But it is now time to move on to actually a fine selection for our film marketing segment. Roger, it is now 1994. Times are very different. The internet is barely you know, starting to get people excited. We've got to go to the big screen. And all we have to do to rely on making that decision is posters and a trailer let's watch the Shawshank Redemption again ladies and gentlemen you've heard all the evidence this was revenge he fired the gun empty and then stopped to reload you strike me as a remorseless man Mr. Dufresne I hereby order you to serve two life sentences back to back I send you here for life that's exactly what they take I'm Mr. Norton, the warden. I believe in two things, discipline and the Bible. Here you'll receive both. Why'd you do it? I didn't, since you asked. <laughs> you gonna fit right in. Everybody in here is innocent. Hey, what you in here for? Didn't do it. He had a quiet way about him, a walk and a talk that just wasn't normal around here. On the outside, I was an honest man, straight as an arrow. I had to come to prison to be a crook. Ah! I think it would be fair to say I liked Andy from the start. You think you'll ever get out of here? I don't think so. Open this door! I guess it comes down to a simple choice, Billy. Get busy living, you get busy dying. There's something inside that they can't get to that's yours. What are talking about? Hope. Wow. Well, confession time for me, Roger. I saw The Shawshank Redemption very, very late. I didn't go to the cinema in 1994. I reckon I saw it on VHS cassette because we're back to the 90s. Uh, 98, 99, something like this. 
Yeah, I did go to the cinema to see it and thought it was um, really, really good. And maybe the reason I went to see it at the cinema was because I was going through a massive Stephen King fetish at the time. I'd read pretty much all Stephen King's books up until that point, and anything that came to the cinema, which was an adaptation of a Stephen King book, was always absolute must-see Mm. Um, cinema for me so that was probably the reason I mean I, I I knew the film was coming I'd read the I mean it's not actually a book it's a it's a novella within a collection called different seasons and within different seasons there were four books four novellas all of which have been made into films now one of which was Stand By Me which is an incredible film of, uh, again uh, uh, that we know about but Shawshank Redemption the the novella was called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. So it had an even sure. longer mm-hmm. title, but yeah, I knew it was coming. And when I went to the cinema, it was just, Oh my goodness, this is such a good film. So if you've not seen the film, we're going to be ever so careful not to you know, spoil it for you, but you must understand despite the lukewarm reception, and we're going to study why that might be the case and what could have been done differently. We now know more than you know they did then. Because, I mean, we were approaching, think about it, it would be 2024, so it would be a 30-year anniversary of this film. People are still talking about it, people are still commenting about it, with the lesson that you get. But for me, it was it felt like an experience. I, I, the, the storytelling was just exceptionally well-crafted. And I know it started from a novella, but I don't know how many pages that was. But, you know, Frank Darabont, the director, would have extended that to something reaching more than 20 pages or so for a full script with all the annotations. And for me, it was just cleverly told as a story, particularly where whilst there is allegedly a main character, everything is done via the other, you could argue, secondary character, particularly Morgan Freeman. It was also this idea of, I'm, I'm watching something which is about lessons after lessons after lessons about life, about destiny determinations, and, and also following your values and your own code, no matter what's happening around you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so multi-layered. As, as you say, the actual novella itself was written in the first person from the perspective of Red, just like the film okay. is narrated by Morgan Freeman's character Red, um, whilst I guess the main protagonist, protagonist is Andy Dufresne, um, who was... Uh, played by Tim, Tim, uh, Tim Robbins, of course. But yeah, the, 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 it, I mean, it, the bottom line is it's, it's actually a relationship movie about men. I mean, it's set in a prison. All of the main characters are men. I mean, fa- in fact, I think there are only two female characters in the entire film, and they can't be on the screen for more than a couple of minutes. Um, it is just totally male orientate now i don't want that to put anybody off uh it is it is a phenomenally deep film and it it's a metaphor for so many things pascal and if you you know it's a metaphor for hope um you know the last lines of the of the book uh, are actually narrated as the last lines of the film it's i hope i make it across the border I hope I get to shake my friend's hand and I hope the Pacific Ocean is as blue as I dreamed it would be. And I mean, even you can tell by my voice, I'm starting to tear up just saying it to myself there. There's this huge thing about hope in there. But as we've always said today about consistency, it's also about 
playing a long game. This guy takes 20 years to escape from this prison. And, and I'm not going to ruin it for anybody who's not seeing seen the film to say how he manages to escape but it takes him 20 years to escape and that is incredible commitment and consistency but it's also from a business point of view a metaphor for having a goal and having a long-term vision for getting to that goal so yeah this this film has has got storytelling it's a masterclass in storytelling, but it's also a metaphor for for so many things. And I think r- right at the, you know, there's a quote which I'll actually read out from Tim Robbins. And he says, I believe part of the reason the movie is so important to people is that in a way it works as a whole for whatever your life is, no matter what your prison is, whether it's a job you hate, a bad relationship that you're slogging through, whether your warden is a terrible boss or a wife or a husband, it holds out the possibility that there is freedom inside you and that at some point in life there is a warm spot on a beach that you, and we can all get there. But sometimes it takes a while. Mm. Yeah, do you know what? I think we should almost leave it there in terms of our commentary by the movie uh, because I don't think we could even match any equal that, and that's the way it should be. All I will say is, for me, it's also the parallel between Frank Darabont's and, to a point, Stephen King's determination to make this a visual and and kind of sound based experience beyond the written work on on the on the, on the print press. Uh, there's also, of course, in itself, what this movie has done is exactly that. Here we are, short of you know, few thirty years later, talking about it in such a positive way. But the beginning just wasn't like that. So if we go back to 1994, um, a very busy year in terms of releases. It wasn't the only movie that people could choose to go and see. The timing as well was a bit off, you know, September, October-ish, nothing much happened just after the summer blockbusters, just before the, the, the Christmas one. I mean, if you look at the UK, it was released in February 95. Not exactly the movie you're going to go and see on the first date, you would, I would argue. <laughs> Not at all. And, and of course, it was up against the likes of Pulp Fiction, which yeah. is another legendary film. And, and Forrest Gump, I can't believe that that, that was the same year. Um, and, and it was, the, the critics loved it, um, but it was a bit of a bo- box office bomb. You know, it just didn't put bums on seats. Um, one of the reasons why, again, maybe the, the trailer, the trailer didn't capture the depth of the storytelling that you would experience if you went to the to the the, the cinema to see it, maybe the the the, uh, the subject matter of of blokes in prison just didn't feel to be very attractive for people to go and see. I and mean, you've already said it's not exactly a date movie, but you know it could be a date movie if you understood the themes of hope and the, the themes of consistency and, and all of that sort of thing. But I, I don't think that the trailers and even the um, the poster pro- perhaps capture the depths that the film goes into. And, and even Morgan Freeman said that the name of the film, The Shawshank Redemption, is a bit of a, it's a, bit of a uh, tongue twister, isn't it? You can trip mm. over that. Um, and, you know, The Shawshank Redemption, it's not exactly Star Wars, it's not Pulp Fiction, it's not Forrest Gump, it's hard to say. You know, crikey, if they'd called it the, the name of the actual book, Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption, it might have been even worse. So so I think that combined with the fact that it was um, up against pretty, you know, strong competition, I just think that 
the, there's no way they could have put a trailer together that could have done this film justice. We'll come back to that because I think I've, you know, I can, having reviewed so many film marketing campaigns, but also because of our career in marketing, we have some options. But these were different times, and I think hopefully they are suggesting what come across as critiques, which is more, you know, we now know, we know more now than we did then. So I think if you look about the history of the book, so 94, not not great, you know, that, that, that didn't work. 95 didn't start so well, and until the this the, that year's you know Oscars, so in '95, <laughs> surprising everybody, but because the critics, for once, were behind it more than the audience. Usually, you know, it's told stories where it's the other way. This movie was actually nominated for seven Academy Awards. So suddenly, yeah. people are thinking, what? Which which film is this? Because best picture, best adapted screenplay, best actor for Freeman, which is excellent, and all the others suddenly in one big event and all the, the before and during and after kind of um, promotional efforts for that 1995 Oscars, the movie is mentioned seven times. So encouraged by that, Warner Brothers and all the others re-released the movie at the theatres and re-release it again on VHS. And then we start to get it to have more, more momentum. Yeah, and and I think and that's when the film started to gather that momentum, and boy, did it gather momentum! I mean, it is it it is now one of the most popular films of all time. In fact, I might be wrong, but I think I'm right in saying that the Internet Movie Database is probably they voted it the all time classic film um, of all time. Indeed, yeah. Uh, so that just goes to show how incredible it is, and I think that. This is one of those films where, if you don't know if you don't know about the film, and you saw the poster or you saw the trailer, you probably wouldn't go and see it. But once you've gone to see it, you understand what the fuss is all about, and and that just goes to show how hard marketing can be. Whether it's a film, whether it's a product, whether it's a service, you have got that obstacle to get over to get people to try out what it is that you offer and if your marketing isn't up to it they may never get the opportunity to sample what you're offering and they may not come to love what you're offering indeed so in 95 we have a, a let's call it a pr boost it's followed mm. a, a later on by you know channels like bravo and tnt and so on who are buying the rights to screen uh, showcase those movies and you keep getting the VHS market you know the rental market first then the purchase market and so on but more importantly anyone who have seen you know Shawshank Redemption will take and tell another 10 people and this is the ultimate example of watermath marketing in action because again we don't have the might of the internet to where it is I discovered recently someone did some research because again it's, this movie is such an inspiration for so diff many different people that in the around 2010 so we are literally 15 years late later one in five households had a copy of the film that's uk data data one that's five in, that's incredible. <laughs> and it, it, it's interesting as well I, one of the things that i have uh, noticed about a lot of the films that we've reviewed and talked about the marketing on this show is that quite a lot of the best films of all time struggled to actually get off the ground in the first place and you know Darabont really wanted to make this film, but even Stephen King, you know, couldn't envisage how a film could be made out of this 
out of the story. As I say, it's a novella, and it was mainly narrated by Morgan Freeman's character in the book. And there is not that level of vivid storytelling in the book as there is in the film. This is definitely one of those examples of a film which is many, many, many times better than the Mm. book and with Stephen King you know there's been quite a lot of disappointing films made of very good Stephen King books here's an example of a film which is many many times better than the source material but again I think Darabont just had that sort of dog with a bone obsession with getting this script written and brought to the screen and in that script as we've already said is multi-layered and there is the the absolute gold that made this film what it is i would want to go back then if i could you know if i was sat in that room in in 1993 i would imagine before they released a movie with the knowledge appreciation that we have today which is of course very very unfair I would say you need more than one trailer. So a trailer per target audience, depending on if you have, you know, the Stephen King kind of aficionados like you, you've got, um, I wouldn't say it's a family movie, so you've got to be careful, but certainly, you know, different groups. I think for me, uh, as I remember now, you know, in 94, 95, the poster was what turned me off, actually. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what is interesting, now that I've seen the film, I know the movie like you so, so well, it's it's a, it's a fantastic image. It's actually the right image. But but also, if you look, some of you can go online and see. If you look at the calligraphy that they've chosen, it feels very religious as well in its in its tonality. And of course, the image is 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 that. So I, uh, you know, between the trailer and basically the poster, I went. I'm not going to see a semi-religious movie about someone mm-hmm. discovering God whilst being imprisoned, uh, I'll, I'll pass. And, and of course, years later, with the VHS cassette, I was like, oh, I was wrong. But uh, no, I was wrong. I was kind of misinformed or misunderstood the, the key messages. So again, maybe different posters. For me, it's back to some of the things we discussed, you and I. They are also, or didn't lean on their kind of USBs. You know, what's the differentiator? Well, it's based on this Stephen King novella. We don't know that either from the trailer or from the... Poster. And I know that Frank Darabond had just began, you know, launching his career, but still the man who wrote, you know, essentially many movies we've seen so far and on its way to late years later to the Green Mile, the mist that we've reviewed here, and of course the Walking Dead. So what are the the hooks and they're not using them? I know they're mentioning Morgan Freeman and Tim Robbins, but I don't think that was enough. No, and and of course up until then, Stephen King was mainly known for horror, mm. you know, outright horror, The Shining, uh, Cujo, um, the, the um, uh, all uh, Salem's Lot, The Vampires, and, and all of that. Whereas this, I mean, there's some horrific content, right? Yeah. But there's no, there's no supernatural horror. There's no, um, you know, medieval horror. There's no monster horror. This is just humans experiencing human emotions in horrifying situations so again i uh, you know they could have played upon that you know this is the first of stephen king's non-horror films but they, they obviously took the decision not to one of the things that i was fascinated to find out when i um, did the research for this was that tom cruise got as far okay. as doing a table read for the part um, uh, Andy Dufresne that Tim Robbins eventually got and the reason that Tom Cruise actually turned it down in the end was that he didn't think 
that he would he wanted to be associated with a first-time director like Frank Darabont. In fact, he said at the time that he would do the film if the director was Rob Rayner. Now, ironically, Rob Rayner was the director of Stand By Me, which was also based upon the novella The Body, which was also in the same collection of short stories as Shawshank Redemption, which again, I think is quite an interesting coincidence. But Rob Rayner had the good grace to say, no, this is Frank Darabont's baby. He wants to do it. He's written the script. He wants to direct it. And Rayner said, I'm not going to make any uh, ructions here. And Tom Cruise walked. And, you know, again, wow, such a big star passed up the opportunity to be in what has now turned out to be one of the best films of all time. And, you know, that, that's actually maybe a hint about what happened then. And we can only, you know, make, uh, kind of get, uh, guess at it. But perhaps they say, well, if we have the word, you know, the, the name Tom Cruise on the poster, uh, all is well, uh, as in the marketing campaign is done. And, and I think, because I didn't, and by the way, I think, uh, I think Tim Robbins is far, far better with hindsight as ever, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. Tom Cruise, I think would have been a very, very different experience. Because I think what Tim Robbins could sell was actually how vulnerable the character is, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, and but also back to this idea of there's a vision, there's a plan, there's a goal, and I will not let, you know, ex- external factors such as even the brutality of, you know, the the prison officers and, and the warden, I mean, the actor played superbly, but God, probably one of the most hated character uh, I can think of. So, you know, I'm not changing my approach just because the others around me are misbehaving or being cruel. Mm-hmm. But, but I think mm-hmm. for me, it's, it's maybe it's that, which is there was maybe a, a different drive, different things. It is very possible as well that with respect to Warner Brothers and the marketing team at the time, they just didn't know what they had, not what yeah. explained to them. or Because when you look at the trailer uh, again and again, you kind of go, well, Compared to the movie itself, there's a complete disconnect as far as I can tell. Um, I get the poster because it's almost, uh, you, know, you get more from the poster once you've seen the film. Um, but yeah, so, so much that um, we can explore, you know, 30 years later. Now, for the 25th anniversary, there was a anniversary screening kind of almost event around the world. You know, cinemas got together with different brands and so on. So we, we can look forward to and hope that in 2024 there'll be something very similar yeah at least an ultra 4k uh, box set <laughs> uh, to look forward to uh, but yeah i mean again I, I, as i said to you i was i was tearing up just reciting lines from the book um, earlier on and i did watch a couple of clips last night just to prepare for this i didn't watch the whole movie because i have seen it so many times but that scene at the end of the movie, and again, I'm not going to ruin it uh, for people who haven't seen it, but I cannot watch that last scene without that amazing rush of, the tears aren't sad tears, they're they're happy tears of hope. Mm. And, you know, we are living in a world at the moment where there are some pretty horrendous things happening. And and a movie like this, which really does have such an uplifting uh, narrative and that uplifting ending, it's just, it, it does feel so good to have that hope that this film brings you absolutely for me when i look back at it you know because you can reflect on it and see things that perhaps even the director himself didn't plan for this idea of storytelling is about a world that's been disrupted by the introduction of a new character you know the, the rider that comes into town so 
we have Tim Robbins entering the prison universe and literally like a shockwave changes everything, changes people, changes obviously rules, uh, managed to even get a warden, uh, obviously uh, come to justice and so on. But actually, you know, you could argue that he is the one to save, you know, Red mm. in, in the end. They probably saved each other, but this idea of friendship again, which has been almost a running theme through through today, this idea of no matter what the world is throwing at you, what individual attempt to do to you, you know what's right for you, you know how to behave in society and beyond, and you mustn't deviate from that. And and I think this message, Finish, you mentioned that, you know, I was reflecting this 2022 movie from 1994, and it's so incredibly relevant. Um, you did the research, thank you very much for this one, and you also spotted a quote from Mark Commode from back in 2004. Do you want to read the first kind of couple of sentences for us? Yes. Now, in, interesting, again, that we, we were talking about Mark Commode earlier, but he says, like most who reviewed the Shawshank Redemption when it was first released in 1994, I was impressed, but I had no idea just how important the film would become to some audiences. Certainly, I couldn't predict that in a few years' time, it would be voted best film of the 90s and fourth best film of all time by the readers of Empire magazine, that it would rival the Godfather, the aforementioned Godfather, and Star Wars for the top spot of the internet movie database subscribers. Poll. So, of course, when Frank Darabont, Warner Brothers, and and the financiers released the movie '94, they wanted a coup. They wanted to recoup their money within the space of a few months. What they got instead is a twenty-five to thirty-year marketing campaign with yes. literally the internet-based, you know, watchers and viewers, but also before them the VHS and the DVDs. So they got more than what they were hoping for despite the initial disappointment yeah and 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 commode goes on to say against all industry expectations a film which had in effect been rejected by audiences in cinemas was rapidly shaping up as a home movie hit with both men and women so what was happening ask any video dealer and they will tell you that the key factor in shawshank's unexpected success on tape was simply word of mouth renters who had given the film a wide berth in cinemas were now taking shawshank redemption home on the recommendation of friends and family increasing numbers of whom were having profound, even life-changing experiences with the movie. Repeat viewing was a big factor too, with fans coming back to rent the same film time and time again, developing an intense personal relationship with the themes and characters in the comfort of their own home. Absolutely. And do you know, that's also sometime where business leaders, let's take it back to our world of marketing where the expectation for the fast results, so you published something yesterday, where are the results, show me the analytics and so on. And you know, all of us could be surprised. I hear all the time from my customers, oh, this blog post from a year ago is doing well right now. What a surprise. Or that YouTube videos from two years ago that frankly I put so much effort in and I was heartbroken is now doing well audiences will always surprise us. And, and I think there will be times where you would get quick results and all the time would be much longer. And it's actually in the mix of that. So in the case of Frank Darabont, I can now look consider that he's going to say, I had the quick, fast return on investment from Walking Dead, for sure. But I also had the long run you know, of 23 years of approval 
literally across the board from you know this movie and i think that's what i'm also taking away which is you have to have a very very diverse range of content format length and and more but also different ways in which you know different lifespan and different ways in which people are reacting to it absolutely right and that long game mm. Thank you so much, Roger, for choosing this film for this week. I mean, we could keep talking about it uh, even more, but I think we might veer towards spoiling it for those who have not seen it, which is also the, the pleasure of this movie. Others will discover this for the very, very first time, and, and I, I'm sure they will be as, as moved as um, uh, you are every time, particularly near the end. For all of you, this was episode 72. Thank you so much for listening and watching. Thank you to Roger for being an amazing co-host. Until the next one, please go out there and make sure your marketing is done right. I was Pascal Fintoni and he was Roger Edwards. Roger Edwards.